This is the Hashtag Higher Ed Podcast, presented by eCity Interactive. eCity creates websites, marketing campaigns, and magic for higher ed institutions, large and small. Every digital challenge has a solution. eCity's talented team of problem solvers will help you find yours. And now, here's your host, Stephen App. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of the Hashtag Higher Ed Podcast. I am your host, Stephen App. We have a really badass show for you today, I think. Uh, That's because my guest is Mike Petroff. He is the Director of Content Strategy at Harvard University and kind of my mirror here. I grew up in Massachusetts and moved to Philly. Uh, Mike grew up in Philly and moved to Massachusetts where he's now uh, in the Ivy Leagues for for Harvard. And we're going to be talking about the Harvard Gazette. Uh, We're going to be talking about content strategy. We're going to be talking about reaching audiences on external platforms. It's going to be a really cool show. So uh, you don't need to hear me introduce it anymore. Let's get right into it. Mike Petroff, thank you so much for for joining the Hashtag Higher Ed Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I think it's really interesting. I've been talking with some colleagues lately and really focusing more on content strategy overall. And I I feel like the more I talk to individuals about this topic – it's like an onion. There's more layers that I'm, that I'm peeling back about content strategy. I'm curious, for someone who is really ingrained in a content strategy role, how do you define content strategy? And I'm curious both to your peers who maybe have an understanding of it, and even maybe to your friends or family who have no idea what content strategy is. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really good question because the, the term content strategy is still relatively new. And um, how it blends in with people that work in marketing or IT or these other areas. Uh, it's really confusing sometimes, but specifically within my role here at Harvard, I like to say that um, what our team tries to do is produce, organize, distribute, and measure content. Those are kind of the key uh, frames that we look through things um, or lens that we look through. Uh, with Within that, we're also building best practices. We're looking at experimentation and testing. We're looking at continuous improvement. So these these other things that we try to do on a day-to-day basis, but that's generally what uh, folks working in content strategy do here. Uh, when, it, when it comes to describing this to uh, friends and family, it gets tricky. I tend to say I do web and social media work. <laughs> if they have a question, then I talk about it. But if they're like, huh, and they just nod their head, then I just move on to the next thing. Not a great icebreaker at parties. <laughs> Not really. Yeah. I think it's fun, though. I, when I do talk to community members, when we get to say, you know, we're the folks behind the at Harvard account, then their ears perk up and they have a million questions. Yeah. I'm curious, too, being at Harvard, because when you talk about the role, you mentioned kind of these short term tactics, right? This is the distributing and publishing content. But then I think there's this obviously more long-term view too, which is trying to test and experiment and figure out how you can optimize. I'm curious from a day-to-day standpoint, how do you try to balance those two very different goals? Yeah. So what we, I think it comes through in the best practice building where we're doing that long view. So um, our team sits within central central administration, which uh, what we're running is the main www.harvard.edu website. We work closely with the Gazette team, which is the official news source of the university, and then run the main at Harvard social channel. So we're only one slice of the Harvard ecosystem, which is huge and decentralized. So uh, a big part of what we do is try to build best practices, share them, communicate 
uh, cooperate uh, with different colleagues from around the schools, departments, and centers. So I think you have to have a really good understanding of what the heck content strategy means in that context, because people come to you and say, you know, what should we be thinking about now? What should we be building for? What kind of role should we be hiring for? Uh, we're doing that kind of work. The day-to-day work, I think, happens uh, sort of organically as we're thinking about the way that platforms are changing or what we should be doing to better optimize for specific types of video or photos or thinking about 24-hour stories. So um, that will always change. That's out of our control and we need to adapt to it. But I think you can still have a core understanding of what content strategy is and bake that in and look at the long-term view, um, you know, like I said, through that lens. I think when people think of Harvard, like you mentioned, their ears perk up. And I think even people in higher ed at other institutions, they, they think, oh, Harvard, yeah, you know, they've got unlimited resources to throw at any problem or, or important focus for them. But I'm curious, I don't think it is that way for you in terms of your own resources. You mentioned you're highly decentralized, but what does your actual team look like and and who do you work most closely with? Yeah, sure. So I, I mean, my background, I came, I worked in higher, I've worked in higher ed for about 15 years now. And I worked for a school, Emerson College in the Boston area before this. And I can definitely say there are a lot of overlaps between Emerson and, and Harvard. I know the external focus on the school is a lot different. It's much more of a brand at Harvard than it is at, you know, Emerson College. But the there's a lot of um, stuff that really sync up when we look at the day-to-day work or the resources available or what we're trying to accomplish with a small team. Um, so what that small team looks like here is that I uh, run a small group uh, of content strategists within central administration. Uh, there's five of us. There's essentially one person that helps um, work day-to-day with the main Harvard social accounts and websites with me. We have a, a digital analyst that looks at analytics across the board from web to social to email within what we're producing. Um, There's a person that works with me that sits within the Gazette team that thinks strategically about news and production. And then there's two other folks that work within client areas. So that's um, one is within the Harvard local communities. So Cambridge, Alston, Boston area, how we're interacting with um, the community that sort of sits just outside of um, Harvard. And then also someone that works within the sustainability office. So there's a lot of goals that Harvard has within sustainability, both in research and also what we're applying here. Um, so that's the team that is working in content strategy. We kind of fold in within the Harvard Public Affairs and Communications office. So folks there work on the news team, media relations. You know, we have creative. Uh, so all of us kind of work within the central umbrella. And then there are a myriad of different ways that that's set up across the institution and in different schools and departments and centers. So we try to create good relationships with folks that are in similar environments at different schools like the business school or the ed school or other things like that around Harvard. Seems easy. <laughs> it is. I will say like my brain exploded every day I came home from work after the first three months or six months I worked here. But now that I've been here about five or six years, I just find the work fascinating, the people fascinating. I mean, one of the cool things that Harvard has that it does give you is that there's never a shortage of things going on or people visiting or events happening or students creating cool stuff. So I think that's where um, we really benefit is just having su- such a breadth of content to pull from and amplify on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, let's talk about one of those channels in particular. And you've mentioned them a couple times. That is the Harvard Gazette. Uh, and I should note that the Harvard Gazette just went on uh, 
just completed a pretty sizable redesign. I'm curious just about the Harvard Gazette, Mike, because I feel like when I'm looking at it, I'm looking at the URL, even the internal links, just the visual treatment. It's a newsroom, but it feels like Harvard is treating news differently than other organizations. Would that be an accurate statement to you? And how did how did that happen? Yeah, so the, the Harvard Gazette team essentially runs like a mini newsroom within our department. And it's um, really, really cool to watch. So I work really closely with that team. And they have a, a small group of writers, a couple of editors, and then they work closely in collaboration with the creative team for photography or video, and then also content strategy as well, thinking through like, how are they putting together these stories? How are they reaching audiences through distribution? So I, I do think that uh, it's, it's a really unique way in which uh, essentially like a school newspaper runs. Uh, it's a little bit unique in the way that they uh, tell these both, you know, recaps of events that happen on campus. They profile people, but then also they tap into these bigger thematic issues, um, things that are in the news, uh, bringing in Q and A's for experts that can talk to, you know, the biggest topics that are out there, you know, being shared. Um, they also cover bigger features, um, things like, you know, inequality or things like the, the Edge of Discovery series they just did on these huge topics that are just on the cusp of a lot of new revelations and they can tap into Harvard experts and faculty uh, to learn more about it. So I, I would think of them as more of, a, more of a magazine than a blog or a press release engine, which is different from what other folks do. Um, so they think they've, they've really found the niche that's uh, important to what the needs of Harvard are. And they produce really, really strong content, whether it's news or profiles or features. Do you think, I mean, is it, is it because you're Harvard that you're, you're able to do that? And I, and I don't want that to come across as a criticism of any kind, but when, when you're the type of institution you are, I feel like you're able to maybe think less about what is the content that is going to explicitly drive applications and more about what is the content that is going to resonate with our audience and build our brand. Um, that feels like it's something that maybe is a little unique to your institution. Is Would you agree or? I think it's so I think it's unique to maybe the department that we're in and others that work in a public affairs or a marketing department would probably have uh, similar goals to our department, uh, whether that's, you know, getting across a certain message or amplifying certain research that's going on here um, or identifying, you know, or aligning Harvard in a certain way um, with what we're trying to achieve internally. So um, that might be unique to the department, and it's different from my previous experience and where, yes, you were putting out content to drive applications or to encourage people to come to events or drive donations or whatever you're trying to do there. Um, and I think the the tricky part for Harvard is that it's, it's you know, in, in other areas, other schools, you're kind of generating the news about Harvard or about your school. We're at Harvard, like news is being generated about Harvard external to you all the time. And you're trying to find the right way to balance basically what you have going on, what your internal priorities are with content and opportunities external to you that you can kind of jump into because there's a Harvard angle there, or even just monitoring what's being said about Harvard as its own job in itself. So I think there's a lot of aspects to having a brand that's recognized, um, you know, broadly, globally, outside of a higher ed, even um, it's a brand that people tend to want to talk about and, and share news about, even if it's not produced by our own team. Yeah, so certainly pros and cons that come with being such a well-known brand. Yeah, definitely. 
I mentioned that the Harvard Gazette underwent a full redesign. I think this is something that a lot of institutions maybe struggle with. And I'm curious to know from your perspective, as an internal team, as someone who's contributing to the Gazette, I mean, how, what are some of the signs or is there an aha moment? Is it just over time? How does an internal team decide, you know, we need to, we need a fresh look. We need to revamp this site. I think what the the moment that sparked for me, because I sit, you know, I'll, I'll sort of speak to the, the content strategy side because I work with the editors, but they really drive the editorial and what they're trying to achieve with the site. But from the content strategy side and supporting their site that was built on WordPress, really they started coming to, when I say the they, it's the writers, the editors, the creatives, they came to our team and we really understood that the site was bursting at every seam with what we could do. And they were bringing up new ideas and new stories they wanted to try and new formats. And we kind of hit a wall and we just said, look, like we're going to either keep, you know, adding little plugins, little features and keep going from there. Or we could take a step back and say, let's, you know, reevaluate what we're trying to do with the site. Um, So I think we hit that point. We hit that limit. And I I worried that we couldn't keep growing the site sustainably if we were going to keep, you know, this patchwork system of trying to do new things. So I think that's the point at which we realize, wow, we should really step back and look at this site uh, in a broad view instead of an individual story view level. And that's what kind of led us down this path of, of trying a really uh, revamped redesign of the site. Yeah, and I imagine even through that process, I mean, you know, Mike, that content, how we consume content, how we want to, um, how we want to deliver content, it changes so fast. And website redesigns do not happen quickly. They, they take time. How did you balance wanting certain capabilities from a content publishing standpoint, whether that's formats or, or just a visual look? How do you kind of balance this changing landscape while you're going through this process? Well, I think there, there were previous redesigns that were you know, milestones in web technology that were around. You know, Everybody's gone through a responsive redesign at this point, basically, when they saw their traffic somewhere between like... 2010 and 2013, you know, totally expanding into mobile. So that was an important redesign in 2013. I think this one was around what our capabilities were internally with visuals and photography and the types of stories we were trying to tell and noticing that there was much more of an external audience that was taking in the Gazette um, and sort of where our position was within the news ecosystem. So I think that was an important milestone here. It wasn't specifically a new technology or anything per se. It's not like, oh, we need to add, you know, live blogs or quizzes or this kind of stuff like that can come over time. This one was really about adding flexibility. I know that sounds like such a broad way to explain it, but we wanted the site to have the visual flexibility and the content type flexibility to allow the editors and writers to produce things that they were craving. And I think it was as much a, a website change as it was an internal change as well, realizing this. So if I were to point to one, it's not a technology, it's more of a culture shift here internally that we wanted to expand the way in which we could visually tell these stories. Uh, I'm curious about testing, Mike. So did you or the Gazette team test the designs for the new Harvard Gazette? And if so, how did you go about that? I think one of the most important things is we had a... Um, a senior team that's kind of sponsoring this project. And I was in close connection with them, um, both my boss, Melody Jackson, also the person that headed up the creative side, uh, Jennifer Anderson, um, you know, all under the, the um, 
sort of support of Paul Andrew, our VP. So I worked closely with them to understand the the needs for the site when it came to different audiences. And I relied heavily on them to give the feedback to me sort of indirectly through people that they were talking to and what the needs were, whether that was on campus and it was faculty and it was students or other um, senior leaders or if it was externally, you know, um, alums or other people affiliated with the university. So I relied on them. I would say we didn't do sort of a large scale UX um, testing as we were going through the site, just because the diversity of the audiences is so huge. Um, you know, we've had times in the site where we've had like a million page view spike because of Reddit and Facebook. And other times we have these really, really important stories that may reach a thousand people, but are critically important to tell internally within Harvard. So if we're kind of moving too far in one direction or the other, we don't give ourselves that flexibility. But I can definitely say there were internal folks that um, had a lot of uh, say in which direction we would go with the branding or the visual design. Or the, the key things I think were important were mainly around like, how do we make this something that we can use every day and feels affiliated with Harvard, but still gives us the flexibility to tell the stories in the way we want to tell them so that it doesn't feel like every story we're producing is a press release. Hey everyone, the Hashtag Higher Ed Podcast is part of ConnectEDU, a podcast network bringing together brilliant minds in the higher ed space and breaking down silos. You can check it out at connectedu.network where you can find great shows no matter where you work on campus, as well as resources for first-time and long-time podcasters. You can also follow along on Twitter at connectedupod and hashtag connectedu. Of course, the Harvard Gazette is an owned channel, and one of the, the bigger things that any content strategist has to focus on is reaching your audience where your audience is, and that might not always be on unearned uh, platform. I'm curious, Mike, for you, uh, one of the things that's recently come up a lot with higher ed is Facebook. Of course, uh, Facebook recently changed their algorithm. It's penalizing publishers and brands. I'm curious, for from your perspective, do you think higher ed institutions were taking Facebook's built-in reach for granted as a marketing tool? I think we were. I think we were taking, for, taking any platform that allowed us to broadcast at a large level uh, for granted for a while. I think we, you know, we saw them as free tools. We saw the followers and reach grow. I think people weren't really too focused on who those people were. They were more focused on what the numbers were. So I think we took a lot of that for granted, and now we're kind of having a um, come to grips moment with, wow, like when these things are not going to be free anymore, or we're going to have to really, you know, be personalized in the approach again, or if communication is moving more to one-to-one -one channels, how do we um, scale that? I think that's the moment that we're hitting right now, and it's really tricky, and I, I've had a lot of behind-the-scenes conversations with folks, and I think we're all at the point at which we're trying different things to see which direction we should we should go. Yeah, one of those new approaches, I, I've watched you share a couple examples of this on Twitter. You know, there are actually notably news organizations. I think it was the Dallas Morning News, um, the Times, the Sunday Times in the UK. They're turning to Facebook groups to cultivate maybe those more niche and higher quality relationships with their audiences. Is this something that Harvard is considering? And do you think that more institutions within higher ed 
uh, need to or will turn to this tactic? I think we're. I think uh, there are definitely different groups here that are paying attention to the ways in which groups are being used and the activity within groups. Um, I mean, most notably, I think groups have been used in higher ed for a while within the admission space and the class of groups and different student organizations and also with alumni class years. So um, that's been going on sort of naturally for a while. But I think we're at the point at which we we have this weird moment of we have internal audiences and, and external audiences. And um, how do we you know engage the internal audiences in ways in which they want to be spoken to? So um, I think direct relationships are really important there or niche groups are really important there. So Facebook groups could be one way. Email listservs could be another way. Um, you know, there's a few different avenues to try to get at your local audiences. But the real challenge is the external audiences because, you know, what what you're competing against is not just other news from within your organization. You're competing with everything else going on that day in a news cycle that, you know, is, is cycling through like every 10 minutes now. So, um I've seen some other groups do some really interesting things with trying to drive conversation around very, very specific focus areas within an institution. So whether that be, you know, um, different areas of research within, you know, cancer drugs or something like that, or it could be around an athletic team or um, there's other avenues, I think, for groups. I think what we're trying to not do is create sort of one giant group that contains all information about Harvard because the problem there is that it's just not going to be specific enough to folks. It's not going to be relevant to their interests. They join groups because it's conversation that's important to them. But how granular do you think higher ed teams can realistically take this? Because I agree with you. I think organically and naturally we've seen, you know, class of groups on Facebook. I've It's not uncommon to see alumni groups who are maybe uh, focused on a specific geographical area. But when you talk about getting more niche, whether it's a research group, whether it's a, an athletic team, you know, how focused can these groups get without losing ownership and, you know, the ability to, to responsibly moderate these conversations? I think you, the, the challenge is probably not getting as niche as you need to get. The problem is scaling that, um, if, especially if you feel like you have multiple audiences you want to reach and they're all interested in different things. That's where I think you have to find your limit and maybe do one vertical really well um, or find the vertical that works as a Facebook group or another vertical may work as more of a broadcast email. Um, I think you can try different things. I think that the challenge will still be in how do you how are you in all places at once and can sort of. Um, be the chaperone in those groups and make sure that the conversation is helpful. Um, I think the other thing we do have to do, we kind of mentioned it, is we have to give up some ownership sometimes if there's a great conversation happening and we can sort of act as a group member rather than a moderator, that might be a good way to play it too. So, um, you know, what people are looking for from us is expertise, connections, um, different things that we can provide. And we have to understand what they're looking for in the moment. Um, the last thing I'll say about groups, too, is that I think this is broadly across social media, too, but this is a change from the mindset that we used to have with web was like things are permanent. We, we used to have this understanding that if we made a website, it had to last a long time and it had to be a bunch of different things all at once. Um, and it had to be there for 10 years with with social. We're learning that, yes, while it's important to understand when and why you have an account, um, a lot of these social groups are 
um, ephemeral and they disappear after six months or two years or, you know, three weeks. Um, I learned that a lot with the class subgroups when students were admitted and they were coming to the school, the, the activity would drop off a cliff when they actually arrived on campus. And it, at first you're thinking like, ah, oh, this is terrible. We got to keep the activity going. And then we realized quickly that they're just finding there are other groups to be involved with and they don't care. You know, that's, that's not a bad thing. We introduced them to each other and they, they moved on from there. So I think we have to understand if we're moving into groups or other types of um, these ephemeral conversations that are happening, we have to understand that they might disappear in weeks and we're, we have to be okay with that. Mike, one of the interesting things that goes along with these different uh, communities and different capabilities that are emerging is voice search. And I know that you are on the early adopter side of trying to get Harvard involved with voice search. Um, Can you maybe even just tease a little bit what it is that you're working with uh, for Harvard that is taking advantage of voice search and I guess why you're deciding it's important for you to get involved in voice search? Yeah, absolutely. So as part of what we were exploring with the Harvard Gazette redesign, we were just thinking of different distribution and format methods um, that we can reach audiences with and looking naturally at where people are going. Uh, One of the things that the the writers have been exploring have been creating pretty regularly now is different podcast ideas, sort of shorter 10 to 20 minute audio interviews that are edited together, um, you know, just like we're doing right now. But um, I think they're trying to just explore that as a different format. Um, Another thing that we're thinking through audio wise was the way in which people sort of interact with content and we were approaching different ways for web we've been trying different things for social but we really never explored that area of either like a chatbot interface through messenger or also just an audio interface through alexa or a google home device so one of the early things we started doing was just understanding the structure and the ways in which alexa would pick up content through feeds or the ways in which google home would interact and the way Knowledge Graph would pick up information. If you asked it a question about Harvard, what was it picking up from? So a lot of it was metadata. It loves like core content strategy work. But then I think the cool part for the user is that we can just say, hey, you know, on your Alexa, you can add um, Harvard Gazette as a feed. So we, we've done some stuff in, in the back end. It's not live yet because we're still kind of working out the details of the way in which the feed will look and what we want to do with that. But I think it's a really important area for content strategists to think about that it's not just you know the content that you're publishing to a website or to social media, but it's also how these devices will try to take what the user is giving it as an input and search and scrape the web and find something to give it as a result. One of the things that's interesting with the voice is that I feel like it, it really embodies this roller coaster trend that we've been on when it comes to collecting data, measuring ROI. You know, earlier in digital, right, when, when everything was new, it was look at we're, we're, we're pushing content and we're reaching these audiences on all these different channels. We don't know if it's working, but we're doing it. And then we had this shift where it was, we can measure anything and everything. And I can tell you where people are coming from and and how they're reacting to content. I feel like now we're actually transitioning back to this environment where we're maybe just not sure how the content is performing, but we know it's important to produce it. How, as a marketer, do you deal with that? And are there individuals at your institution, maybe supervisors or, or bosses 
that are uncomfortable with that lack of data? Is that something that you're facing? Yeah, I mean, it, data is such an important topic right now. And this is why we went in the direction of hiring a digital analyst uh, about two years ago to come in. And um, one of the first jobs he has, his name's Aaron Baker. He's, he's awesome. And he basically looked at, number one was, what's our, our data ecosystem? Like, where are we posting to and what data is available, what are we collecting? And the second part was data quality. Um, you know, he didn't immediately jump in and say, here's the reports I'm going to deliver. It was really about understanding where are we even getting the right information from these platforms? Where are we getting stuff that was sending us in a completely wrong direction? Um, so a lot of the work in the early stages was about quality. But then we understood that we had so much volume of what we could be reporting and sharing. And we uh, have making, we, we've made really big strides on trying to um, get really focused on the way in which we're presenting this information, doing a lot of the analysis and the work up front so that when we're sharing information, we're not sharing a giant spreadsheet saying, here's how we were looking this week. It's really about like, here are the things we're testing. We're trying to be intentional with it. This is what we're learning and this is what we're going to take out of it. Um, so a report format that I typically use when it comes to like, we have, you know, this amount of time to get the attention of someone to pay attention to stats is really we go into it with a mindset of what was our goal? What did we do? How did it do? And then what would we do differently now that we know this information? And that's the last piece that a lot of people forget. They tend to focus on how did it do? So if we look at those four steps and say every report we send should have this information, if, if really if it comes down to it, the only thing they pay attention to is the what was our goal and what were we doing differently now, we can move the d- department in a different direction, a more positive direction. If we're only focused on how did it do, then we're basically just collecting numbers and throwing stuff at the wall and hoping it works. So I think that's our approach to analytics. And yes, it's true. It's like there's so much volume and you need to pay attention to everything. But I think when you're talking to others around the institution, you really need to have focus when you're sharing reports and and analytics and numbers. I feel like there's such an importance now on identifying what those KPIs are before you launch something. I know you mentioned goals, but really determining what can we track that relates to that goal? Because the goal itself, I mean, let's, let's go super high level and say, you know, we need, we need more students. We need to increase yield or whatnot. Um, You're not going to be able to track that through your marketing with data, but I imagine the key is really identifying what the KPIs are that you can track that relate to those overall goals. Absolutely. Or you add another layer to it where if you know you need to collect qualitative information that's not available within the platform of the insights, then you need to survey, you need to focus group, you need to collect information that's, you know, augmenting the the stats that you're collecting through the platform. So, I mean, we've done that as well when we're looking at, you know, the redesign or we're looking at asking people questions about um, their interactions with the email and their perception of Harvard in a certain way or their preference for a content type. I think you learn a lot from that extra piece of information it might take a little extra work or you might have a representative sample of 10% of people giving you information, but that's incredibly helpful to help dispel myths that might be internal or, um, you know, there's a lot of anecdotes that are shared where it's like, you know, students don't care about email, so they want a Twitter account. You've heard that a lot, probably in higher ed. Um, when you ask students, it's, you know, the perceptions come out because they don't click on anything, um, but they love email because they can quickly scan. So we make sure when we're expanding into the student audiences, we're not paying um, as I don't say as much, um, we're not putting the importance on clicks as much as we are with just general engagement and visibility. Um, so it's kind of a, a long way to explain back to 
Um, yes, it's important to look at this stuff, but understand really like the core of what you're trying to get at. And if you don't have that information, you should still try to shoot for getting it in some way. I think email has died and risen from the dead about 10 times just this last year. There's a great years. quote that I heard, which is basically like, email is the cockroach of the internet. <laughs> it'll never go away. It'll be like seemingly dead coming back all the time. Hey everyone, a quick shout out to the agency that makes this show possible, eCity Interactive. You know, I really do love coming to work every day at eCity, and that's not just because everyone shares my love of donuts. Uh, but that's really because I get to collaborate with a talented team working on everything from user experience to content and digital marketing to web design and development and a whole lot more. Our work has earned us an incredible roster of education clients, including the University of Pennsylvania, George Washington University, Petty School, Cornell, Drexel, Rutgers, and many others. So if you're looking to improve your web and digital presence and better communicate your school's story, visit us online at ecityinteractive.com and get in touch. Uh, well, Mike, thank you so much for, for joining the Hashtag I Read podcast. I feel like we could probably talk for another hour here. Um, before we let you go, a couple housekeeping matters. First of all, you know, I want to allow you to, to do a shameless plug for yourself. Where can listeners find you online? Sure. So I'm probably most active on Twitter. So you can find me at Mike Petroff on Twitter. Um, you can also connect with me on LinkedIn. And then um, you can see kind of the latest that I'm up to on my site, MikePetroff.com. But um, definitely if you have any questions, thoughts, ideas, um, comments after this, definitely look me up on Twitter and I'd love to talk to you there. Absolutely. And of course, each week we ask our guests to give a social shout out to a colleague or an individual that uh, deserves a little bit more recognition of the great work that they're doing. And I know, Mike, that you came prepared with someone, so I'll, I'll hand it off to you. So I'm going to give a shout to one of my favorite content strategists out there. She puts a big smile on my face when I think about her. Uh, it's Tracy Plail. Uh, she um, heads up a group called Pickle Jar Communications out in England. And uh, we've been connected through higher ed for years at this point. And luckily, I was able to go present at her first conference last year, Content Ed Live. And I'm going to go back again this year. But I feel like anytime she's in the States across this side of the water, uh, we will try to meet up in the area. And we have conversations that last for an hour to two hours, basically about the future of content strategy, what we should be doing, what we should be thinking of. And she's just someone that really um, makes me more passionate about the work that I do. And I think she's super smart and really talented. So I wanted to give her a shout in this episode. Yeah, I'm also a huge fan of Tracy. Not only her work, because her work is great, but she is my idol because she has her electric tea kettle hooked up to audio commands within her home. And I think that is something we all need to strive for. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, Mike, one more time, thank you so much for joining the Hashtag High Red Podcast. I really appreciate it and uh, really looking forward to future conversations and keeping up with the Harvard digital ecosystem. Awesome. Thanks so much. For, I was really excited to do this podcast. It was a lot of fun. 